This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Our card this week is card number 353, Ed Olwine, pitcher for the Atlanta Braves. Okay. Ed Olwine, very excited to get to this one. But before we do, some sad news. We wanted to note the passing of Brooks Robinson this week that we're recording on September 26th. Brooks Robinson, the Hall of Fame third baseman, who we've mentioned, I don't know how many times, is crossed paths with so many of the players that we've mentioned. Brooks Robinson, by all accounts, uh, an incredible person, super nice guy, but also the human vacuum cleaner. The <laughs> defensive specialist, perhaps the greatest defensive third baseman who ever lived. I have a distinct memory from my childhood of my dad using a Brooks Robinson glove. That was his model of glove that he used when we would play catch in the backyard. He had two gloves. One was a catcher's mitt with Bill Freehan, and the other was a Brooks Robinson model Rawlings glove. I used, of course, a Dale Murphy glove and a George Brett bat. Always wanted to be a third baseman like George Brett. But because my dad used that glove, I had this image in my head that, well, that's the guy. He was the third baseman. The way that my dad would talk about Brooks Robinson's defense and hearing older baseball fans talk about Brooks Robinson with such reverence and such such joy talking about the beauty of his defensive play, it, it put in my mind that this was the greatest third baseman. On this show, we sometimes talk about guys where our memory of them does not match up with the stats. And then we dig into advanced stats and we're wondering how in the world Andre Dawson won an MVP in 1987 with only four wins above replacement. And we and we dig into it and it kind of clouds our memory of the greatness of some of those those guys, we, we can acknowledge great numbers, but then we look at it through a lens of compared to other people at the time, compared to other players, adjusting for rabbit balls. Brooks Robinson has some of the most ridiculous defensive statistics, including defensive war numbers, run save numbers that you will ever see. And it's kind of heartening to see that for a guy who was known as an average offensive player. But he had some really great seasons offensively, too, including his MVP season in 1964. But he also had some defensive war numbers, multiple seasons in the four defensive war, four defensive wins above replacement, just outrageous. And he kept that going well into his 30s. He won his last gold glove at 38 years old. While he hit only 201 that year, He was valued at two and a half wins above replacement just defensively. I pointed out mostly to say that sometimes we talk about the eye test and you see a guy and you know that they're great and then the numbers don't back it up. In Brooks Robinson's case, I think that his numbers are are somewhere it truly backs up. The statistics can help us tell the story of, of this guy who maybe we never saw play live. The criticism that happens sometimes that you see from nostalgic Twitter accounts, let's say, that criticizes stat heads of the of the current era and saying, you're not appreciating the greats of the past. Here you did have someone who, 
in watching the game, you could tell that they were exceptionally skilled, that they were clutch at what they did, that they could inspire generation of kids to follow in their footsteps. And as we heard from so many players and so many stories, pretty much anyone who was a third baseman or who touched the Orioles organization while he was there. And sometimes the numbers are right. Yeah. And I think in this case, there are other guys who we look back and say, wow, I never realized how great Jim Fergosi was. With Brooks Robinson, everybody knew he was great. And then you look at the numbers and you realize, well, yeah, he was that good and maybe even better. <laughs> and his his offense wasn't even that bad because compared to the other third baseman at the time, he was actually very good. So you know, a, a sad moment because we're talking about Brooks Robinson because he passed away. But it is nice to see the numbers validate his greatness. Thank you for that, David. Let's go now to today's card and Ed Olwine. And why are we talking about Ed today? Shockingly, Matt, Ed Olwine has been suggested, I think, multiple times. <laughs> is this a man you've it's ever a... heard of? No, never. I guess it is inevitable. There's only 792 cards, and we have millions of listeners around the world. So the odds are every card will be suggested multiple times, David. It's just math. At Braves Vintage on Twitter in 2021 just sent me a picture of an Ed Olwine signed 1988 Topps card. Just tagged us in that. I don't know if that's actually a suggestion to talk about the card or just a... Oh, that counts. That counts. But also Charlie on Facebook posted the same card and said, my mother-in-law found a shoebox of my wife's old baseball cards last weekend, and I found this beauty. We're both longtime Braves fans, but I must admit, Ed Olwine is unknown to us. This seems like the kind of obscure player you specialize in. So thank you, Charlie. Yes, we do. So I looked <laughs> up Ed Olwine back in 2022 when this was suggested, and I found nothing. And I was going to look into it and then forgot and said, oh, we'll get to it sometime in the next 15 years. But then a recent new subscriber, new listener, new friend of the show, Curtis, sent me a bunch of articles. Curtis sent me a note and said, if you guys ever need any help, I'm happy to help you out. And so I think Curtis might be our new research assistant. <laughs> Thank you, Curtis. He's working on his doctoral thesis in Ed Olwine studies. Now, Curtis, thank you so much. And any other listeners, if you just want to uh, pick a guy and then find like 10 articles and send them to me, it's greatly appreciated. So Curtis, he sent all these articles. Ed doesn't have a Sabre bio, but we have some great information. Ed Olwine, a solid AAA pitcher, played three seasons in the majors and holds a dubious winless distinction and he also had a couple of interesting career choices that he made fantastic can't wait to find out more about that and it's true if you have players that you'd like to hear and you'd like to do the research for us you can always email us at 1988 tops podcast at gmail.com now let's go to the front of 353 and we have a shimmering ed Olwine. <laughs> At a minor league stadium, you can see the Marlboro ad at the base of the scoreboard. You can even see the, the cowboy. Jump. You can see at the, the Marlboro man there. You can see the Marlboro man himself. Can't make out what is at the top of that jumbotron. 
And to be fair, it's not quite a Jumbotron. This is just a regular scoreboard size. It's a regular Tron. Yeah, just a Tron. <laughs> Ed's hat, though, is jumbo size. That's for sure. It is beginning to obscure the letters and Braves at the top of the card. Also noticing the use of the reflector by the photographer here, as it is a bright and sunny day. Ed's cap is casting a shadow on his face, and yet his forehead is gleaming brightly, <laughs> as are his cheeks. Ed looks good here. Blue eyes, nice smile. He has a nice gray Braves top and blue hat. This is a good-looking card. This is a classic Braves uniform. Atlanta returned to their original button-down uniforms in 1987. This one is similar to the jersey worn by the Boston and then Milwaukee Braves from 1945 to 65. Shortly after the move to Atlanta, they switched to the pullovers, and then they brought in some of the dark blues and then the powder blues that I love. But this was a return to a classic look with the piping and Atlanta written across the front of it. I like this jersey. It's a real classic look, throwback to the Henry Aaron, Eddie Matthews days of the Braves uniforms. Yeah, Ed's 29 in this picture. He looks fresh-faced. You know, he's had two seasons in the majors at this point. So a promising mid-career pitcher on the rise in this photo. Let's go to the back of 353, and we have Ed Olwine. Pitcher, 6'2", 170, left-handed thrower and right-handed batter. Signed by the Yankees as a free agent in 1980. Born May 28th in 1958 in Greenville, Ohio, with a home in Hyannisport, Massachusetts. There's lots of lines on the back of this card, but no fun fact. But his name is fun. Old wine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it does remind me of like a an old prospector type. You'd be like... I I heard from Ed Olwine. Can't trust that Ed Olwine. When I was looking up the name Olwine, Google auto-corrected it to Lil Old Wine Drinker. Lil Old Wine Drinker Me is a song first recorded in 1966 by Charlie Walker, made most famous in 1967 by Dean Martin. Dean Martin's version hit number 38 on the Hot 100 chart and also appeared on the Easy Listening charts. And this is also recorded by Robert Mitchum. Didn't know that Robert Mitchum had a music career. In the 50s, <laughs> he had a Calypso record. And then in the 60s, he had a country record. This more popular version is the Dean Martin version. This is in his country era. So the grapes can grow and they can make more wine. And I'm sitting in a honky in Chicago With a broken heart and a woman on my mind I matched the man behind the bar For the jukebox And the music takes me back to Tennessee I do like Dean Martin's country music. I enjoyed his uh, My Rifle, My Pony, and Me, I think with Ricky Nelson. But Dean Martin had, had some good country hits. 
so on top of little old wine drinker, little Ed old wine drinker, old wine reminds me of Rudy Kurniawan. And Matt, at one point, Rudy was said to have the greatest wine cellar on the planet. He sold tens of millions of dollars of vintage wines to all sorts of famous folks. At one point, he sold eight magnums of 1947 Chateau Le Fleur, only for an expert to point out that only five magnums of that wine were ever produced. Because it turns out Rudy Kurniawan was a fake and defrauded hundreds of people, including some of the richest people in America who bought these historic old wines that Rudy was rebottling and fraudulently labeling. And Rudy ends up serving nearly a decade in federal prison. He was deported to his native Indonesia. But in the process of his rise, he made friends with some of the most famous wine folks in America. His story is featured in the 2016 documentary Sour Grapes. Uh, At one point, I think I watched all of the movies on Netflix about frauds, about art heists, (laughs) wine heists, any kind of heist particularly documentaries like this where, uh, you know, exorbitantly wealthy people are getting ripped off by ridiculously overpriced bottles of wine. It, that's a soft spot for me. The name Old Wine from House of Names, the world's most reputable internet source that I found in a quick Google search, said the ancestors of the Old Wine family first reached the shores of England in the wave of migration after the Norman conquest of 1066. Their name is derived from the Old English personal names Ulfwin and Elwin, as well as a collection of other names containing the elements Ulf, which means elf, and wine, which, contrary to my thought, does not mean wine, but actually means friend. It's a friend of elves. I like that there's a real word in there. And then there's elves, friend of elves. Friend of elves. Yeah. So ethyl, ethyl wine, ethyl wine, or isle wine died nine twenty two. Was a Saxon royal official of East Anglia, fourth and youngest son of the elderman Ethelstan, called half king. Early American settler Yost Olwine arrived in Pennsylvania in seventeen fifty five. Ed Olwine, not sure if he's related to Yost or ethereal wine or alwyn who knows if he's even a saxon elderman he grew up in greenville ohio friend of the elves greenville city of around thirteen thousand people in western ohio about ten thousand when ed was born some famous green villains annie oakley grew up in the county surrounding greenville she sold hunted game in Greenville as a young person, ultimately died in that city at the age of 66 after her famous sharpshooting career was over, and she's buried nearby, and there's an Annie Oakley Center in Greenville. Paul Norris, who is the co-creator of Aquaman, and also NFL player Matt Light. Another MLB pitcher, Jack Baldshin, graduated from Greenville High. He played in the 60s for the Phillies, Reds, and Padres, and passed away earlier this year in 2023. At Greenville High, according to his 1987 Tops card, Ed was all-conference three times for the Green Wave. He showed up on the radars of scouts. The White Sox selected him in the 21st round of the 1976 draft right out of high school, one pick ahead of pitcher David Palmer, who would be his teammate in Atlanta. Ed didn't sign. Instead, he went to college at Moorhead State, which is located in northeast Kentucky. Moorhead State, notable alumni include Walt Terrell, also in the set and a teammate of Ed's. 
John Rausch, the tallest MLB player at 6'11", drafted by the White Sox, but played for the Sox, Nationals, Diamondbacks, Twins, Mets, Marlins, and Jays. NFL quarterback Phil Simms, who was picked number seven overall in the 1979 draft, even though Moorhead was a Division II football program. Good scouting there. And the most famous, I think, of all these, Chuck Woolery, famous game show host and very dubious political figure. Dating women on TV with the help of Chuck Woolery. I think all TV game show hosts have dubious (laughs) political beliefs. I may be thinking of someone else. Uh, no, you might be thinking of someone else and Chuck Woolery. <laughs> well, yeah. Moorhead State, the baseball program, was run by Steve Hamilton. And Steve Hamilton was a two-sport athlete. He was the, like a Deion Sanders type. Steve Hamilton played basketball and baseball at Moorhead and then played professionally for the Lakers with Elgin Baylor for a few seasons. Meanwhile, he's pitching in the minors. Then he switches full-time to pitching plays 12 seasons for the Yankees, Cleveland, the White Sox, Washington, Cubs, Giants. Late in his career, he used an EFIS pitch, which was called the Folly Floater. Good name. Got to name your EFIS pitch. And he ends up coaching at Moorhead State from 1976 to 1989. Having a former professional pitcher probably worked well for Ed. But at Moorhead State, Ed was there for four years, and his stats are unimpressive. But as a freshman, he's described as a definite starter. It said he's a mature pitcher, throws deceptive fastball, good curve and knuckleball, good control, good pitches for a college pitcher. He is 4-5 and five with an ERA over 7 as a freshman. As a sophomore, ERA close to 7, 6.75, struck out 37 in 41 innings. He had elbow surgery in the offseason, comes back for his junior year, has a 5-4 and four record, but an ERA over 5.5. He played in the Cape Cod League in 78 and 79, winning back-to-back titles with the Hyannis Mets. And that's where he met his future wife, Lili. On the back of the card, it said that Ed was living in Hyannisport. That's where Lili grew up. Her parents were neighbors of the Kennedys. So it's odd that you have this multi-year minor league pitcher living in Hyannisport alongside political royalty but his senior season he went one and two with a 5.17 era so here's four years of college ball at moorhead state none of his four years in college did he have an era under five how on earth does he make the major leagues you wouldn't think that he's a future major league player at all he wasn't drafted in college he wasn't drafted after college but he was signed as a free agent by the yankees I guess they just took a flyer on him for Ed's path to take him as a just free agent signing somehow and to make it to the majors many years later is pretty fascinating. Have left arm, will travel. That's, I think the moral of this story is that as long as you have some decent stuff and a left arm that works, you can be a reliever. Ed spent seven years in the minors. The first year he was really good at Rookie League Paintsville, then he plays at Anianta and Fort Lauderdale. Between the three teams and 21 appearances, he had a 2.4 ERA. He was seasoned after that time in college ball, so he started out strong. 1981 and 1982, he's in A ball, and his ERA is in the threes as a relief pitcher. 
keeping the hits and walks low. He's got a whip in the 1.2 to 1.3 range. And in 1981, he led the South Atlantic League with 19 saves. Also had a side gig delivering newspapers, the Boston Globe and Hyannis Port in the offseason. And Lely would drive him around. Ed would put his arm out the sunroof and throw the papers. The shift started at 2 a.m. and they would stay up all night delivering papers. That's that's a life. This is romantic stuff here. This is great. In 1983, he gets a chance at AA Nashville. In 29 games, he had a 4.35 ERA, giving up a hit in inning. But he still got called up to AAA, where he proceeded to get demolished and had a strange stat line, 2-0 with an ERA over 9. He gave up 21 <laughs> hits and 6 walks in only 10 innings. Not good. But in the offseason, for some reason, the Mets picked him in the Rule 5 draft. So at this point, you had, they had to spend some money to pick him up. But because he had spent most of the season in AA, it just meant that he would have to stay at their AAA team for the full season. Next two seasons, he actually played really well at AAA Tidewater. Yeah, but they never called him up, which is, it is pretty strange. On their major league squad, they've got Jesse Orozco, and he and Tom Gorman were their lefties on the team. But you'd think that they would find a spot. After that 1985 season, Ed was traded to Atlanta for a slightly younger lefty, Mike Santiago, who never made it above AA. And Ed started at AAA Richmond for the Braves. He was pitching well. He had just turned 28 years old, and Bruce Suter went down injured, which opens the door. Ed had a 2-0 record and a 0.73 ERA in 24 and two-thirds innings at Richmond. He was the next man up. At this point, he had four good pitches, fastball, curve, slider, changeup. Also, Atlanta wasn't very good in the three seasons that he was there. In his first game, he pitched two innings, gave up one run and a loss to the Pirates. In his first 16 games, Atlanta went 2-14. and 14. He had no record and an ERA of 2.87, so he's pitching pretty well. In August of that year, he came on in relief of another old rookie, 29-year-old rookie named Cliff Speck, in a game against San Diego. Speck was a first-round pick in 1974, who then spent 13 years in the minors. Speck gave up one run in five innings. Ed comes on in relief, up 3-1, to one, and he got nine straight guys out. He gave up a pinch-hit home run to Carmelo Martinez, but then held on for his first major league save. So we added something to that stat line, 0-0 zero and zero with one save. Speck got his first big league win. He would go 2-1 and one in 13 games, and that was his only big league season. On the season, 1986, Ed was decent, 37 games, one save, 3.4 ERA. He is back on the squad for 1987, used sparingly early in the season, did spend some time back in AAA, and so you can see lines for both the Braves and for Richmond at the bottom of the card. When he was called back up to the majors, he only appeared in 27 games altogether and had an 0-1 record with a 5.01 ERA. And a bit of a surprise here, David, that he was featured in Sports Illustrated. The article is titled Working for Peanuts. And according to Lee Ed has, quote, got to keep moving. Otherwise, he's a real disaster. If he'd sit around watching TV, he'd go crazy. So in his free time, Ed was always thinking about other jobs that he could do. He said as a kid, he had three dreams, to have his own milk delivery route, to be a vendor in a big league stadium, and to be a taxi driver. So he, in 1987, fulfilled one of those childhood dreams, not playing professional baseball, but one of those other ones. He was a peanut man, 
at Atlanta Hawks games. Another article about this experience says, Pitcher tries hawking. And it says, Olwine going from bullpen to the stands. He made $45 per night selling peanuts at Atlanta Hawks games. And considering there are only 40 or so home games, and how many of those could he do, considering he had to be at his own baseball games for a portion of the season, that's not a lot of money for Ed. So I think this was mostly a fun thing for him. At most, what is that, 1600 bucks a year? It's not a ton of money. Also seems like a lot of work to walk up and down the aisles with peanuts. At one game, Olwine heard a potential customer yell, Hey, popcorn! And when he went to the source, he found teammate and fellow pitcher David Palmer, who we mentioned earlier, who had been picked one spot below Ed in the draft. But at this point, they were teammates. Palmer said Ed was busy, so he didn't have much time to talk. Added Palmer admiringly, he looked like a natural out there. In another article about this, kids were asking for his autograph, but then the kids were quoted as saying, that he was Randy O'Neill, another Atlanta reliever. So they didn't even know who he was, but they knew that's the baseball guy. He said he avoided selling beer because he didn't want kids to see him selling beer as it might set a bad example. I'm dubious about that one. You know, in the in the vendor community, beer is number one and the veterans get that. You can't just show up at Old Wine and get to sell beer. You got to start with peanuts and cotton candy. I do know about this because of my other podcast about concessions called Hot Dogs. Hey, beer, man. It is true. The bottom of the barrel is red ropes. Also a bad example that Ed set, he missed a game due to strep throat. I appreciate that he wasn't spreading any germs. But then he was back in action for a game on the night of his wedding anniversary. (laughs) Oh, come on. You can take two games off, Ed. Ed. It's 45 bucks. You're going to be all right. So I noticed from the Sports Illustrated article that it said he was making the league minimum at $62,500 a season. He can't be doing it for the money. It just does seem like he has one of those personalities where he has to be working. But as a major league pitcher, he can't pitch every day. And even as a reliever, he can't pitch every day. So he has to feel like he is keeping himself busy. But I'm sorry, like missing your wedding anniversary because you're going to be selling peanuts at the Hawks game. I am shocked that Lili stayed with him one day later. I can't confirm this, but I think that they're still married. Well, Lili is a saint. In 1988, he was injured, not by Lili for doing this, but from playing baseball. And he spent some time at Double A rehabbing his injury. Didn't really go well. He had an 8.15 ERA in nine appearances. Got called up in June, trying to get him back on track, and had a tough time. Had no decisions in 16 appearances with a 6.75 ERA. And was sent back to AAA, where he was good. 1.5 ERA in 12 innings. Ed's demotion to Richmond allowed Bruce Suter to rejoin the Braves roster. Suter was just two saves short of 300 saves. This activation enabled him to achieve exactly 300 saves before his retirement, which he did. And he was elected to the Hall of Fame in 2006. He owes it all to Ed. But after 1988, Ed was released. He signed with Kansas City on a minor league deal, went to camp as a non-roster invite. He thought that he could help out. He ended up assigned to AAA, and he was good in 88 innings, a 1.2 whip, 2.85 ERA. Heading into the 1990 season, he re-signed with Atlanta, 
pitched at AAA, and in 25 games had an ERA over 5. He was dealing with some injuries. He ended up undergoing rotator cuff surgery, which effectively ended his baseball career. So closing the book on Ed Olwine, three seasons in the major leagues, pitching 80 games, a 4.52 ERA, which is an ERA plus of 89, Record of zero wins, one loss, and three saves with 54 strikeouts and a whip of 1.24. And a career batting average of 333. He went one for three with a walk and an OPS of .833. That's an OPS plus of 131. Use that in the Immaculate Grid. The Immaculate Grid always has guys who had a 300 season or 300 career batting average. Ed had both. So if you have an Atlanta box and 300 batting average, Ed Olwine. You know what? I shouldn't say that out loud. You're just going to, this is going to mess up my percentages. You're going to throw off the rarity score. I can't believe you've given away these secrets. Don't say we never did nothing for you, folks. So Ed Olwine loved to face. He was a reliever, so there weren't a lot of people who had a lot of plate appearances against him. Jose Cruz and Tim Flannery went 0 for 6 against Ed. In the hated to face, he gave up 13 home runs in his career. Ten guys had one home run, but one person had three home runs against him, and that was Kevin McReynolds, who went three for five with three home runs and two walks. That's an OPS of 3.114. Absolute domination. How about in retirement? Other guys from Georgia, peanut farmers, go on to big things. Here we have a pitcher slash peanut salesman. He could have gone into the peanut business. He knew all the ropes. Instead, he went into medical sales. And then a few years later, he went into real estate in the Atlanta area in 1997. By 2011, he was salesperson of the year. That year, he sold 21 homes for a total of $8.8 million in sales. And he is currently with Sotheby's. So he's still in the real estate business. If you're looking for a home in Atlanta, look up Ed Olwine. So, David, this is a guy neither of us had ever heard of, and we had to get information from our listeners to be able to do this show at all. Now that we've dug into this research and we found out everything about Ed Olwine, what do we think? Ed is a member of the Greenville High Athletic Hall of Fame, but I don't know if he's in the Moorhead State Hall of Fame. He wasn't really a great college pitcher. Normally, we see these guys, and they're great at each level. Ed had some struggles in college, but he was a lefty and he kept at it. And he kept at it for seven seasons in the minors. And we mentioned a dubious distinction. So I want to go back to that sales award. When he won that sales person of the year, he said, I was very appreciative to be nominated. It's always nice to win. And in that article, it said, the wins most people don't recognize these days are the ones Olwine racked up as a baseball pitcher. The article doesn't say that he actually never had an MLB win. He was 0-1 for his career. So if you do a stat head search for players with exactly zero wins and more than 50 games pitched, there's only 18 guys on that list. At the top of the list, you have two names that are tied. You have Ed and Juan Alvarez. Juan Alvarez is listed first alphabetically. They both threw in 80 games and had zero career wins. That's a record. The most games pitched without a single pitching victory. Neither of those guys started a game. Alvarez was 0-5. Olwine was 0-1. Ed pitched more innings. He had 89 innings in 80 games. 
Alvarez was a left-handed one-out guy, a loogie, and only pitched 60 innings in his 80 games. So a lot of appearances that would now be illegal because of the three batter minimum. But Alvarez only pitched to one batter at a time and then was pulled. So you have these guys who just never were in line for a win. And this was on a list of the most bizarre baseball records. And we know that wins are not a great stat to determine value. If you look at the record for Atlanta in games that Ed pitched, by season, they were 8-29, and 6-21, and 21, and 1-15 and in games that he pitched. So he was coming into games where he didn't have a chance to get a win. These are bad teams in probably losing situations. He's just there to pitch an inning, maybe two. Overall, in games that he pitched, the team was 15-65. and 65. That's terrible. And the, the best year of that three-year stretch was also Ed's best year. 1986, when Atlanta went 72-89. and 89. This 80 games with no wins is not really Ed's fault. He was a victim of circumstance, playing on a bad team, being a lefty reliever. He often wasn't going to be brought in to win games. He's mostly just there to eat up some innings. But he made the most of his stint in Atlanta, fulfilling that childhood peanut-selling dream, and then went on to a really successful sales career in real estate. And hopefully... Selling real estate is more lucrative than $45 a day. (laughs) I just appreciate the hustle that it looks like Ed was showing during that time, taking nothing for granted. It's a really positive story and really want to thank Curtis for sending such great information about Ed. It really helped make the episode possible today. And we want to thank you at home. If it's ever been your dream to sling hot dogs at the Omni We'd love to hear all about it on Twitter. We're at Tops1988. Thanks a lot. We'll see you next week.